My old solution was the solution we hear about all the time is let's pour more money into it. It's not fair. Uh, it's not fair that some people have access to education and others don't, so let's pour more money into schools, uh, let's pay teachers more, let's have smaller classrooms, uh, let's have nationalized health care. Mm. That would be the answer of the old Nikolai, pour more money into it. The new Nikolai says, well, <coughs> let's start with education. Since the 1970s, when the Department of Education, which was Hugh at the time, Health, Education and Welfare, uh, started, we've had a tripling of the cost per student in government schools, K through 12, with a drop in scores. Mm -hmm. The incentives aren't there. Uh, the student, you know, some great people are teachers, but they don't have the incentive to serve uh, the students. The bureaucracies are increasing much faster uh, than the student than the um, teacher salaries. Um, we see this at the higher education level, where we have what I would liken to an Austrian. Uh, business cycle where we've had so much federal money coming in in the form of subsidies, direct and indirect, uh, subsidized loans, quality has gone down. We need to insert market competition into that. Poverty, disease, illiteracy, exploitation. These are problems that have plagued human society for a millennia. These are problems that public policy and market skeptical philosophies such as socialism believe they can solve. When something goes wrong, the first thing that most people think is there ought to be a law for that. Indeed, that's why we have government, to solve problems that private society can't fix on its own. The economic term for such a fail is a collective action problem. But what if the solution to these socialist or otherwise market skeptical and interventionist concerns could be solved faster, better, and more efficiently with market solutions? They often are. But why is there so much bias and favoritism for state intervention? Joining me today is Nikolai Wenzel, who's a professor of economics and an affiliate senior fellow here at the American Institute for Economic Research. He's spent quite some time thinking about the limits and potential of market solutions to perceived market failures for quite some time. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Nikolai, welcome to the show. Thank you. And also, welcome to AI Yards. Uh, my you. impression that you are the new affiliate senior faculty uh, mm -hmm. here at the Institute. So I guess for our audience, I'd like to just get, in, get to know a little bit more about you. So uh, what exactly brought you to become an economist in a way and to study, the, study these ideas more from a classical liberal perspective rather than the uh, more traditional perspective? Well, I was a political science major, international relations at Georgetown University as an undergrad, and I confess I hated economics. <laughs> I got three C's in economics, my mandatory uh, micro international trade and finance, got an A in macro because I put my head down and memorized it, even if it didn't make sense. I hated it. I never wanted to take economics ever again. I wanted to be a foreign service officer. Mm. And while I was in the Foreign Service, I discovered Thomas Sowell out of the Hoover Institution and his writings on uh, bureaucracy. And that opened up my mind to public choice theory, to Austrian, to reading Ayn Rand on the top deck of a cruise ship when mm. I was escaping from family. <laughs> and I left the Foreign Service and I went to work for Leonard Liggio at the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, mm. which you may know now as the Atlas Network. Mm -hmm. And Leonard shared with me several times a week articles in the Austrian and public choice tradition, which made sense. And they explained the world. So I thought, I need to know more about this. Mm. And I signed up for a class with an unknown professor named Walter Williams, who turns out is <laughs> mm. a legend of teaching and mm -hmm. was a great inspiration to me. And I took his price theory intermediate micro class at George Mason University, which was at that time just a mile down the road from Atlas. And I remember the day when he explained to us that 
prices move resources from lower valued to higher valued uses. Suddenly the market process made sense to me and I decided I want to get a PhD in this. Mm. And I loved economics so much at that point that I thought I want to teach this and I want to make it exciting for the students. So I went to teach at Hillsdale College for four years where the students were absolutely amazing, small classes, hard workers. But I like to say I left Hillsdale for four reasons. December, January, February, and March. <laughs> mm. I could not handle the winters. So then I worked for um, two different, uh, one state school and one private school in Florida for about six years. And uh, I got a distinguished professorship and tenure for the first time as a full professor and endowed chair in North Carolina at one of the state schools there. But the quality of students was going down so dramatically and the academic theater, the bureaucracy was going up so much that I got really tired of that. I want to come into the classroom with energy and I can help an F student get to a C, a C student get to an A, but I want something from the mm. student. And so I'm moving to Paris in about three weeks mm. now. I will be doing, uh, continuing my work for AIER, which is mostly teaching three programs a year for some of the students and uh, participating in some writing and I write for the AIER website. And I'm also going to be a professor at uh, a startup university in Spain called Hesperides University, which is in some ways an offshoot of Francisco Marroquin University in Guatemala. It's a startup university entirely online and dedicated to the questions of preserving liberty. So that's already been an exciting intellectual journey as I have students from all around the world who are curious and hungry for all these ideas. Mm. And I guess uh, sort of, because uh, we have a very, over drinks we're talking about our backgrounds. We have mm -hmm. a similar intellectual trajectory I went to uh, you know a mainstream private school, Trinity College, also left leaning. Um, they taught economics in a way that was you know essentially well, I'm sure the same way they taught at Georgetown. I was a poli sci major. I had IR focus, um, mm -hmm. much like you. I thought the UN was the super best institution in the world and super cool, and perhaps we can solve all these problems with some if we just get enough uh, prime ministers in the same room. Yep. Um, but of course, that's um, now I, you know, I attended grad school at George Mason, much like you, you know, mm -hmm. a nice 180 shift. So um, was there, did you go into Georgetown with the idea of just, you know, more progressive ideas and then eventually um, had a course correction or were you always liberty oriented or, or, or at least inclined uh, going into undergrad? Well, it was a complete course correction mm. after um, undergrad. I had some fantastic professors at Georgetown University, some, some of my closest mentors who taught me how to think and taught me how to write and taught me about the, the Western intellectual traditions. But I went into Georgetown and came out as a Wilsonian institutionalist. Mm. So I really thought that anything that the U.S. government could not solve, well, the U.N. could solve. So I was never a socialist, but I was certainly what we might call more an interventionist. Mm. And it was after graduation when Leonard Liggio, was about six years after graduation, right before grad school, when Leonard Liggio started sharing ideas with me. And that's when the, the click happened, something about um, the potential of human beings and something about the importance of liberty. And I, I still wanted to find out if markets could solve the problems that we have. But the philosophical foundation was, let's start with liberty and see what we can do from there. Mm. 
And at Georgetown, was there any sort of uh, antipathy in the market ideas? Because I know uh, one of my friends at Georgetown Law you know, tried to make an economic argument in his contract class. And the <laughs> joke, not necessarily a joke, this is what happened, I guess it's a joke uh, at the institution, was like, oh, you're, if you're going to make those arguments, you know, you can go down the river to <laughs> George Mason over there. So was there a similar atmosphere at the undergrad campus? Honestly, I didn't know enough about the ideas to recognize that. I have seen that in the economics profession. And uh, I know that with a George Mason uh, graduate degree, PhD in economics, there are probably the top 30 to 50 economics programs are shut down to me. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Um, or at least very difficult to get into. And I've had people look at my work and say, well, this is really interesting, but how is it economics? Where's the mm -hmm. math? Where's the mm -hmm. model? But in the tradition of Hayek, I prefer point prediction to pattern prediction. I think humanity is way too rich and complicated to be understood exclusively through math models. Mm. So I use uh, philosophy, I use history, um, I use uh, some cultural theory, uh, but of course I use economic reasoning. And uh, it's, a, it's a different approach to it. I would say even that most economics programs today are branches of applied mathematics, and this has been more or less the case since after World War II with uh, the rise of econometrics and mathematical modeling, and I consider myself to be a political economist in the tradition of my heroes, mm -hmm. uh, Hayek, Mises, Buchanan, and um, though Buchanan was a little more mathematical, but he certainly was grounded in the political economy tradition, started with, let's say, the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit earlier. Mm. So yesterday you told me that you have a hopefully forthcoming book mm -hmm. um, and that's essentially trying to focus on f presenting market solutions to traditionally socialist concerns. Um, and it tends to always be the socialists say we have a collective action problem, you know, healthcare, poverty alleviation, mm -hmm. workers' rights. And what you're trying to say is that all these concerns are valid, but socialism is not the answer. Maybe not just socialism, nationalization, just general state action is typically inferior to what could be a better market response. So do you think that, before we get into that, do you think that there's a generally speaking a bias, especially in the elite academy, especially where you graduated from? Um, uh, if you see a problem in society, it's Maslow's hammer, right? It's the, we have the government, we can fix this right away. Do you think we just have an action bias right now? Oh, absolutely. An action bias and also well, Brian Kaplan, the economist at George Mason University, talks about an anti-market bias that mm -hmm. a lot of people have. And the reflex is always, well, the market's imperfect, so let's have a government program. And if the government program doesn't work immediately, let's double the budget. And uh, I find that to be pretty sad mm -hmm. uh, because markets work. Markets work really well. Mm -hmm. And uh, most people don't really understand what markets do and what they are. And, so I've started, we've got a draft of this book that I'm writing with um, my friend Brad Hobbs, who's a professor at Clemson University. I think we're probably 90% done with 90% to go, but <laughs> I'll be at AIR for the next month, wrapping it up and then chopping it around. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And sort of getting into that, I remember that um, one of the big statements always made is that markets alleviated all of poverty, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, once, the, once markets started becoming more common around the world. And I remember that's sort of like a really weird, especially to a traditional undergrad student trained in traditional poli-sci mm -hmm. economics. It's sort of counterintuitive in the way of like just not doing anything leads to uh, better results for people rather than trying to do something. And that was really introduced to me by uh, for a mutual colleague of ours at Stringham. 
Um, when I was an undergrad at Trinity, you know, I was taking all the traditional classes, you know, learning all how the state can fix all these things. And Stringham's class really, he basically, what and essentially what started my path to the dark side, i.e. Uh, yep. <laughs> being a pre marketeer mm -hmm. working here at AIER was that, you know, he just pulled out a graph of the world, you know, where, what all the poverty rates are and like income rates, and he just showed, and then he just, it was just correlated to uh, economic freedom index. And that, for me, is what really set it off and exploring um, more about these ideas. And obviously, that's how I ended up here. Um, so I wonder, do you think that's sort of kind of like a weird conundrum that many people can't wrap their heads around until they learn more? It sure is. Ed Stringham, by the way, is an old friend of mine, and he's a great communicator of these ideas. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that he was able to share some of those ideas with you. Uh, I, I think there's a misperception that if there's no government program, then we're not doing anything to solve a problem. The question is, who's doing the doing, if you'll forgive my, mm -hmm. my phrasing? Is it going to be a government bureaucrat who may be a very nice person, but lacks a personal incentive in the way an entrepreneur does or um, an individual worker does? And the bureaucrat also lacks what Hayek called the particular information of time and place. So it's the people who are closest to the action who know more, the entrepreneurs, the individual actors. And what happens when government steps out of the way when barriers are removed. Uh, in the original French from Turgot, laissez faire, laissez mm -hmm. passer, let us, let us go forward, let us... When people are allowed to exchange, then they are the ones, the economic actors, who are doing the activity and solving programs, whether directly or indirectly. I'll come back to that a little bit later, but one quick statistic that I think makes sense to share now. Before 1800, everybody was poor. There were a few pockets of markets. Uh, commerce certainly had developed over the past few hundred years. And the guilds, for better or for worse, the guilds were basically old school trade unions, but they mm -hmm. also allowed for some specialization and the opportunity to get off the land. But there was precious little market activity before 1800, and everybody was poor. No modern technology, very little uh, economic surplus, uh, relatively little innovation. We have an explosion in 1800, of course, with the Industrial Revolution, the application, mm -hmm. the ideas of the Enlightenment. By 1990, uh, about 37% of the world now is living in absolute poverty. By t today, the statistic is somewhere below 10%. Mm. Why is that? Well, we had the 1800s revolution, and then we have two other important revolutions because they happen in the world's two most populated countries. The death of Mao in, I think it was 1976, I may be mm -hmm. off by a year, Deng Xiaoping, who is still a brutal dictator, comes along and allows some level of economic activity in China, and we see the economic explosion of China. Mm -hmm. And in the mid-1990s, the end of the licensing Raj in India, so regulations being lifted. And we see hundreds of millions, quite literally, Indians and Chinese lifting themselves out of poverty because the government has stepped out of the way partially. Mm -hmm. Now. China has its own set of problems. Um, and I see the wonder of reducing world absolute poverty. And this is in the same time the population of the world has expanded by huge factors. And we now have 7 billion people in the world and we're creating more as humanity. I see that as a wonder. It's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity. We're down to less than 10% absolute poverty. The poverty figures are still high. We still have problems, I see a scandal also. Why aren't we applying more markets? Why aren't we bringing more people mm. into the exchange of globalization? Let's keep reducing poverty internationally. Let's keep reducing absolute, but any kind of poverty. Let's increase opportunities. Let's reduce poverty in the US and in the wealthy countries. Let's reduce homelessness. We have the tools to do this. Mm. So I guess 
Marx might say that, you know, he admitted that markets are incredibly productive. Mm -hmm. And then essentially his theory is that you use markets to get the technology, to get everything you need before so you can create your communist utopia. Mm -hmm. um, but they're then but at the end of the day, they're still fundamentally flawed and immoral. Um, so why do you think so I guess to tee up the question of the socialist problems and the market solutions, given that Marx might, might admit that okay, fine. Their markets are very productive. Um, they produce things, they invent mm -hmm. things. Okay, cool, that's that's great. What are the problems that you think a socialist or just someone who believes in more government intervention um, would then see once you, you know, once you establish relative uh, well-being and you have markets, what are the problems that they want to solve after that? Well, I think there are two answers to your question. One is uh, almost misguiding a magician mm -hmm. saying, look over here. We have absence of markets. People are not suffering from market failure, they're suffering from absence of markets. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, government failure because governments are not defining property rights. So the first problem I wanna mention is in the US today, somewhere between 50 and 60% of the economy, maybe even more, is controlled by bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. So we have about 20 to 30% at the federal level, depending on what Washington resolves with the debt crisis, 20 more percent of GDP controlled by the states, about 10% uh, controlled by other forms of compliance with regulation. So right there, we don't live in the U.S. in a fully market economy. And so there are going to be a lot of the problems. Uh, the presence of government is impeding growth. It's impeding opportunity. 30% of, of Americans need a job license. I've got a PhD in economics and 15 years of teaching experience. I would not be allowed to teach economics or social studies in high school because mm. I don't have a license. <laughs> mm. And so that's the first thing is, Socialists and, I would say, socialists and other uneducated people, but I think it was Hayek who said, <laughs> mm. if socialists understood economics, they mm. would not be socialists. So the first problem we have is uh, great impediments in markets. And so markets are being blamed for what they're not allowed to do. That's the first one. The second is markets are never going to be perfect. Markets are an opportunity for human beings to exchange to rely on each other's information, to rely on each other's work through division of labor, uh, to innovate, to create wealth, to create jobs, to serve consumers. But we still have fallible human beings with incomplete information. Now the question is, are markets perfect? No, but what's the alternative? The alternative is a government bureaucracy coming in and the sheer weight of history, in mm -hmm. addition to economic theory, tells us that that's going to be a problem there. So we still have lingering poverty. Uh, we have dismal educational results in the U.S. Uh, we have people going bankrupt because of health care. We have an imperfect protection of the environment, even though it's gotten better over the years. We still have minorities and women struggling to catch up from illiberal policies in the past, and <coughs> in many cases, government failures mm -hmm. because the governments were not granting protecting the rights of women and minorities. Uh, we still have instability in the financial system. Mm -hmm. uh, but in all those cases, instead of pointing to even more government, we, we already have 50% of the economy or more controlled by the state. Let's get the state out of the way, let markets solve most of these problems, and then civil society can come in on a volunteer, voluntary basis and clean up the rest. Hmm. So I guess to dive into that question more, what would the old Nikolai, the Georgetown undergrad Nikolai, mm -hmm. react when he sees um, you know, lack of healthcare access mm -hmm. and um, lack of quality education. What do you think his solution would be and what is the solution you would present now? So my old solution was the solution we hear about all the time is let's pour more money into it. It's not fair. 
Uh, it's not fair that some people have access to education and others don't. So let's pour more money into schools. Uh, let's pay teachers more. Let's have smaller classrooms. Uh, let's have nationalized health care. Mm. That would be the answer of the old Nikolai, pour more money into it. The new Nikolai says, well, <coughs> let's start with education. Since the 1970s, when the Department of Education, which was Hugh at the time, Health, Education and Welfare, uh, started, we've had a tripling of the cost per student in government schools, K through 12, with a drop in scores. Mm -hmm. The incentives aren't there. Uh, the student, you know, some great people are teachers, but they don't have the incentive to serve uh, the students. The bureaucracies are increasing much faster uh, than the student, than the um, teacher salaries. Uh, we see this at the higher education level where we have what I would liken to an Austrian uh, business cycle where we've had so much federal money coming in in the form of subsidies, direct and indirect, uh, subsidized loans, quality has gone down. We need to insert market competition into that. Mm -hmm. And historically, uh, where markets have failed, um, charities have stepped in. But we need to unleash markets. And even Milton Friedman, who great hero of liberty, thought that there were network effects and the state should subsidize a portion of education for children who can't afford it, but he pointed out there's a big difference between provision and subsidy, and the mm. state just is not good at providing education. In terms of health, I will point out that we're suffering from 100 plus years of intervention. So you have the American Medical Association, well, some good things, but what does it do? It restricts supply, prices go up. You've got Medicare and Medicaid, Subsidies to a portion of the population, prices go up. Uh, it's either illegal or highly regulated, uh, depending on the, the situation, to sell insurance over state lines. Highly regulated markets. Mm. Uh, we don't have transparency in billing. We still have health insurance because of intervention by the state, because of playing with the tax code and wage and price controls in the mm -hmm. World War II. Uh, health insurance is not portable from job to job. I've changed jobs a number of times over the years. I've never had to worry about my car insurance because I pay my car insurance premium every six months. I've been with State Farm for the past 20 years. There's no problem there. But when I change jobs, I have to think about my next health insurance plan. And the temptation, of course, is to go into even more regulation. Mm. And we need to fix it. We don't want a country where... Um, where people don't have access to, to health care and it can go bankrupt because of it. But we also don't want to be in a country where there's homelessness or food. And we know that when the state steps into homeless, uh, the uh, shelter and food provision, bad things happen. Mm -hmm. Starvation happens. So we need to look at market solutions. And again, where markets fail, civil society and charities can come in and do a much better job than uh, the state can in terms of fixing the problems. Mm. So you're bringing, up, <clears throat> you're bringing up what's fundamentally an incentive and structural issue. And I guess to, I'd like you to dive into that more. So I guess there's sort of like a people don't really like the idea that, uh, you know, profit motives um, can get they don't they don't they want everything to be a nonprofit or state driven mm -hmm. initiative. Um, and but I guess it was, you know, it was Adam Smith and then Ayn Rand who articulated more on a more popular scale. It's, you know, it's people don't necessarily provide services to one another because they care about each other. It's more so because mm -hmm. there's a profit incentive. And that's generally speaking why, you know, um, people opening up grocery stores feed millions of people and make tons of money and all this, you know, tends to feed more people than a five-year plan in the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. for example. So what exactly, can you elaborate more on that? I guess sort of like that, why people don't necessarily like the profit motive, but at the end of the day, the profit motive is what get things, gets most things done. Right. 
Well, it's what is seen and what is not seen, back to our friend Frédéric Bastien. There's this notion that people in government are selfless. I mean, if you think about the vocabulary, a public servant. Mm-hmm. And then the notion that people who work for the, uh, for the private sector are somehow motivated by this shady thing known as profit. Mm-hmm. And I've even had some people say to me, you can't privatize education because then schools would be motivated by profit rather than quality. Said, well, they're not motivated by profit now. Well, profit of a sort, more taxpayer mm-hmm. resources, but not profit, not innovation, not competition. And we have low quality. And I think there's a tendency for people not to think about incentives. I can jump a little bit into financial regulation because I think this is a uh, an appropriate way to look at incentives. I get a little teary-eyed when I talk about banking because mm-hmm. banking is the 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 oil in the in the uh, capitalist market machine, and mm-hmm. it's underappreciated and it's gotten a bad name over the years. But in a sense, as much as I love it, banking is a little bit of a boring business. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we had all these fluctuations in interest <laughs> rates, uh, there was the old joke that banking is a three six three eighteen model. Mm-hmm. Uh, bankers will take your money at three percent in a checking account. They'll lend it back to you at six percent and cut out of work at three o'clock to play eighteen holes <laughs> of golf. Mm-hmm. It is a somewhat boring business to the extent that you don't want to go into a bank and realize that your funds are no longer in the checking account. And the manager comes out and says, well, we have a problem. We lent all the funds in your checking account to Wenzel, Mm -hmm. and we forgot to run a credit check on him. And instead of buying a house, he went out to Las Vegas and he lost it all at the uh, the roulette table or baccarat table or whatever it is, not Mm -hmm. a gambler. That's really embarrassing. And banks fail and the career of the manager is shot. And so banks want to be very careful So let's look at incentives. The 2000s come along, you get the Community Reinvestment Act, which was initially an anti-racist provision, something called redlining, which we can Mm -hmm. get into separately. But we have the federal government trying to push, and this is bipartisan, by the way, Mm -hmm. the federal government trying to push greater ownership. So how do you get more home ownership? You get banks to make more loans. But banks don't want to make loans to people who aren't going to pay back. So you do one of two things. You punish banks when they don't make enough subprime loans, mm. and that's what we saw with banks seeing their not necessarily their charters revoked, but not being allowed to uh, uh, expand or facing uh, open new branches or facing greater scrutiny. And then you reward banks when they make more of these low-quality, higher-risk loans. And so what we saw is that during the 2000s, banks were making, and you have all sorts of fun names for them, like the Ninja Loans, No Income, No Job, and the mm. Liar Loan, where you didn't have to provide documents. And the banks were making loans to people who were high credit risks, Mm -hmm. keeping the origination fees, and then immediately selling those potentially bad loans to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, which were private but public institutions. Mm -hmm. They were private in the good times, and the shareholders made good money, and they were public as soon as (laughs) uh, there was a crash and Mm -hmm. the taxpayer bailed them out. Banks were just following incentives. They responded rationally to bad incentives. And a lot of people don't see that. And so the, the profit motive is a good incentive, but the profit motive is also tempered by competition. It's tempered by fraud laws. It is tempered by tort laws and the possibility of lawsuits. And it is tempered, back to Adam Smith, if we jump backwards from the wealth of nations, that example that you paraphrased about the benevolence of the brewer, mm-hmm. uh, the baker. Um, but it's also the moral sentiments in a mm-hmm. society. Civil society is going to act as one far, further additional guardrail 
against some of these difficulties. So you put all that together. If planes start falling out of the sky, we're not going to blame gravity. Mm -hmm. If banks start failing, we're not going to start blaming, blaming greed. Greed's always been there. How is it channeled? What are the incentives? How do you serve the consumer? What are the laws? What is the civil society and the moral sentiment of a society? Hmm. So that's definitely a pretty essential but also basic notion that businesses are, are many times self-regulating in a sense that their reputation is on the line, there's competitors mm -hmm. who can take their place. So why do you think that, uh, especially regulars in the federal government, you know, established professors who have plenty of influence, you know, they have degrees from fancy universities, and they're, mm -hmm. I'm sure that we know many of them. They're very smart people, of course, but why do you, and I guess to paraphrase Thomas Sowell, um, you know, all these, the problem is like all these smart people just know things that just aren't so, yep. right? So do you think there's a problem with the way that we're teaching things in the academy, especially as it pertains to the more public policy facing focuses, i.e. Like, like MPP programs, law degrees, mm -hmm. uh, graduate studies, and you know, NEMA, social science, right? Is there just a lack of edu economic education? There is. There's a lack of economic education, but there's also, I think, a lot of bad economics out there. And I'm going to blame Paul <laughs> Samuelson. I love to blame mm -hmm. Samuelson, um, who dedicates several chapters in his fundamental economics textbook on market failure, but to my knowledge doesn't talk at all about government failure. And so there's this notion in the <coughs> neoclassical synthesis that markets are really good at allocating scarce resources among competing wants, sure, but market failure is prevalent and needs to be solved at the micro level by the government. And at the macro level, there is zero self-equilibrating process. So we need massive demand management uh, through fiscal policy and monetary policy. And there's still that notion that these forces are so big that they can't be left to chance. So we need experts. And unfortunately, I think a lot of economists play into this, and economists and lawyers have become the new priesthood, mm -hmm. whispering counsel into the politician's ear, the regulators here. And nobody's going to get elected by saying, my platform is do nothing. Mm. It'll take care of itself. Mm -hmm. You have to explain it a little bit better than that. My platform is I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to let you, the taxpayer, I'm going to let you, the entrepreneur, I'm going to let you, the head of household, you, the worker, uh, work on different things. And it's so, think about the incentives of bureaucrats. In the good times, bureaucrats don't, when we saw this in the 2000s, uh, I forget the exact number, but a vast majority of the banks that ended up failing after 2007, commercial banks, had been ad identified by the FDIC as problematic, but bureaucrats don't want to do anything in the good times because they don't want to be seen as rocking the boat. And then in the recovery period, which is exactly the time when you want to let business grow and innovate and try things, that's when bureaucrats get really worried and risk-averse, and they don't want to be seen as doing nothing because we just had a, a recession or a stock, a stock market crash. And that's when they get particularly active and block the recovery. Mm. So it's back to incentives. Mm. So to dive into what, what you maybe the limits of markets, and I guess to defend my profession, the legal profession, oh, a little sure. bit. I'm not saying that I endorse at all most of what's going on. Um, but of course, I'm sure many people might say, especially just classical liberals, I'm sure I don't want to start a debate over anarchy versus classical liberalism. Sure. That take hours. I don't even know where you stand on that equation. Um, but generally speaking, what do you think... I guess, like, one, do you think the limits are valid or 
Because I know people like to stress, um, for example, a legal system, you want it to be very impartial, mm -hmm, and that's why mm -hmm. uh, the government tends to do a better job than perhaps private court systems, although private arbitration is a pretty right. interesting <coughs> and dynamic field. But perhaps you still want a baseline area where, if, you know, if it's the private arbitration fails, you can go to the court system, which mm -hmm. has its own incentives that are not profit motive. Okay, sure, why not? Um, do you think that argument is, do you think people maybe take that too far? Do you think it's just right? Um, where do you think people, kind of like the arguments about the limits of markets and then the, the necessity for government, um, where, where do, you, do you think people kind of overblow that limit or you think it's uh, kind of just right? Well, the first thing I want to say is in defense of your profession, um, I think the same parallel applies to economists. I, have, I know a lot of great economists and I know a lot of economists who are so completely caught up in the power game and the power trip of whispering advice into uh, bureaucratic ears that they're not interested. I'm not going to say it's three-thirds, but if you think about what lawyers do, there might be a third who are engaged in a positive-sum game of protecting clients, a third who are engaged in the positive externality of creating rule of law, and a third who are engaged in redistribution and mm. uh, negative-sum games. I don't know if it's a third all the way, but just like banking, the legal profession is extremely important. And this brings me to my next, um, my next point in my answer to you. The state can, and in my opinion, should be providing rule of law. Mm. So that means protection of, you're a lawyer, you know even more about this than <laughs> I do, but that means um, protection of property rights, protection of individual rights, um, protection of contracts, impartial courts, or as impartial as we can have them with fallible human beings, predictability of laws, and a legal profession that is dedicated to advancing the protection of those rights because without protection of individual rights, without protection of property rights, without protection of contracts and impartial courts, you can't have markets because mm -hmm. you're going to have... Now, of course, we could get into the debate on anarcho-capitalism about mm -hmm. who should be providing that, but I think historically, if we look back, when states have done a good job, it's the good job of producing rule of law and I'm encompassing within rule of law, the protection of various rights and um, the facade of Harvard Law School, which is an mm. irony. <laughs> the facade of Harvard Law School read, su reads, uh, non sub homini set sub deo et lege, not under men, but under God and law. Mm. That concept that the lawyer is there to advance the rule of law and not arbitrary actions, um, bureaucratic arbitrary actions, the actions of the powerful who are able to capture the system. And the more the state expands, the more capture and rent-seeking opportunities there are going to be. The more the state expands, the more the state becomes a player with its thumb on the proverbial scale, becoming one of the actors in the game as opposed to being an impartial arbitrator. So I certainly think so we can have debates about the limits of markets, but perhaps instead of looking at the limits of markets from some absolute where we'd love to be, where there's 0% government intervention, let's start by looking at the 50 or 60% of markets that are controlled directly or indirectly by the state and start pushing that back at least towards a constitutional understanding. When in doubt, go back to the U.S. Constitution. It's not a perfect argument, but it's pretty darn good. Mm. And one of the problems we have is that the Constitution of 1787 emphasizes economic opportunity, economic activity over political activity. What's happened over the years with um, uh, the expansion of power after the Civil War, the expansion of power under the progressives and Wilson, the expansion of power under the New Deal and then the Great Society, and the expansion of the weight of the federal government, 
more and more political activity is being rewarded, cronyism is being rewarded, rent-seeking is being rewarded, it's a separate part, but I'll, I'll finish with it, I suspect that the increase in inequality in the U.S. has to do primarily with the expansion of government because the politically well-connected are able to make even more money. You know, uh, we're both from Washington, the Washington, D.C. area originally. Mm -hmm. Something, the statistics obviously change every few months, but something like 50% of the richest counties in the U.S. are surrounded, are in Washington, around mm -hmm. the Washington, D.C. area. Mm -hmm. This is an area that basically doesn't have much of a native <laughs> industry, except mm -hmm. it's a regulatory factory that spews forth negative externalities mm -hmm. into the rest of the country. That's the problem that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. That's So we could have a philosophical debate about whether there should be 0% government intervention or 5%. Let's start by reducing it from the 60% that we have down towards a constitutional understanding. Hmm. I guess, uh, so rule of law, I think most people, except for the anarchists, can get behind. What do you think about uh, when it comes to, because generally speaking, especially uh, post-progressive era, the, the role of the state in many ways is to um, advocate for the consumers when corporate power mm -hmm. is unchecked, right? The average consumer um, cannot necessarily on their own or maybe in a group, it's pretty hard to get enough people together to uh, pressure a company to stop sure. polluting, pressure a company to make their products better, right? So what do you say, do you think the state has a role in sort of like these more, let's call it like moral duties, i.e. Mm -hmm. people, like for, it doesn't matter how economically efficient it is, it doesn't matter what economic equation you give me, at the end of the day, people are mad that, you know, X company is doing this thing right. and therefore mm -hmm. as a cohesive uh, social unit, we have the right or even the duty to mm -hmm. use state power to enact these sort of, I guess, moral, um, uh, moral preferences, I guess right. you, like, you could say. I think the state certainly does, but not in the way that we're thinking. Mm -hmm. So if the state has a responsibility, let's start with the resp primary responsibility of the state to protect individual rights, protect property rights, protect contracts, etc. What we see is in its attempt to protect consumers from the big bad corporation, what the state is doing is it's failing to protect the property rights of mm -hmm. consumers. So we're looking at a case like uh, pollution. It makes perfect sense that there would be a district attorney uh, on behalf of an individual fighting a criminal case against a, um, a company that has polluted people. Um, it makes perfect sense that you would have a respect for property rights that would grant standing to an aggrieved individual mm -hmm. in a torts court. Uh, what about power asymmetries? Well, we overcome power asymmetries through things like uh, class action lawsuits. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to get into that, mm -hmm. but it seems like a good idea. Uh, James Buchanan talked about club goods, so people can uh, gather into associations and sue the polluters. And if we have a defense of property rights and a vibrant and independent tort system and criminal system, then the state is indeed protecting um, people in cases of lack of symmetry, of power asymmetries. But the problem that happens is then when you get the state coming in to try to help the individual consumer against the big bad company, uh, Think about basic public choice 101. Mm -hmm. Who's going to be at the table influencing the bureaucrats? Who's going to be influencing uh, the elections? Who's going to be making the big contributions? It's not going to be the individuals. It's going to be the very corporations. So I think this is a case where we have a government failure rather than a market failure where the state is falling down and it's trying to do so much that it is falling down on its basic duties of protecting individual rights. Mm. So. I guess one final question on this point. So I think 
when it comes to things like environmental law, um, product liability, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, that kind of neatly falls into enforcing basic property rights, uh, basic individual rights of your product harmed me, mm -hmm. I can sue you, sure, okay. Um, maybe that's that, that makes sense. What do you think about the state getting involved in more, I guess, going more, further into the moral direction, um, things like data privacy, right? Data mm -hmm. is a private invention that's right. created by a contract between companies and individual consumers right. and has nothing to do with your private, like polluting or getting or hurting people in any sort of traditionally cognizable way. But at the end of the day, people seem to like data privacy. Um, they seem to want the government to get involved. So do you think the government has a role um, or do you think government is the best tool in that case to solve these problems where at the end of the day, it's sort of like a private invention. It's not mm -hmm. really violating traditional conceptions of rights. Uh, but then in the day, there's a really huge demand for intervention. And in many ways, you can maybe argue that it's quite good for society to have mm -hmm. data privacy and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think the problem here is, again, back to enforcement of basic rights. Hmm. What are the contractual obligations? What have people signed away? And what have they accepted? And we all, we're all asked to read through those documents mm -hmm. and click. How many of us actually read through it? That's a mm -hmm. choice that we make. Uh, Again, I think the state does have a role to play in the protection of contracts and the protection of individual rights. But if the state comes in, there are going to be massive distortions in the end product that we have. So I haven't looked at data privacy specifically, but I will bet you a dollar for the symbolic dollar that mm -hmm. if I were to spend six months looking at data privacy, I would come up with a conclusion that looks something like this. The state should enforce contracts and should enforce individual rights and should uh, enforce the basic privacy norms that have emerged through the common law over the years and the centuries. But at the same time, if the state attempts to take a positive role, mm. in the sense not negative, but in, uh, an active role in influencing the debate, we're going to have massive difficulties and unintended consequences. It may look good in the short run. The state's coming in, it's going to fix the problem, but it's going to end up creating distortions the way the state always creates distortions when it comes in. And that's not to say that the state should do nothing. It's not to say that we should all roll over and play dead in the face of the companies that are using our data, but that the state should go back to enforcing rule of law, protecting uh, private property rights. If I were really worried about it, for example, in a free market environment, um, I would band together with some of my friends into a club that does this. and the club would be the club of lawyers, basically. So you would have your your, your data privacy law firm, and you know, this may be a, a career <laughs> opportunity for you. And then I would get instruction from that law firm on what contracts to sign and not to sign. And most of the time, I'm just flippant about the contracts that I'm, the electronic contracts that I'm signing. But if I were really worried about it, I would, I would seek counsel. It's too expensive for me to do alone, mm -hmm. but if we have hundreds of thousands of consumers doing it, consumer protection agencies on a volunteer, and we see this all the time, underwriters, laboratory, consumer reports, advocating for consumers, I'm going to say even before these three months of research that we can rely on tort law, we can rely on club goods, we can rely on criminal, on criminal law, and those are roles of the state, um, not the club goods, but the protection of property rights rather than meddling into the content of, in fact, some might argue it's um, a violation of the spirit of the Constitution for the state to come in, the federal government to come in and meddle in the context of uh, content of contracts. Hmm. So I guess to summarize that, perhaps some intervention is necessary, but that intervention should be based on these sort of 
uh, emergent preferences or rules that are traditionally associated with individual rights, contracts, mm-hmm. uh, and then we should be very skeptical of just kicking the responsibility to the state and saying, all right, please save us. Uh, right. Please come up with a new data bill of rights with everything you want in it. Um, it should be based on whatever we come up with. Should we, there, Many of the solutions are already rooted in the way we view traditional consent, traditional contracts, right. traditional indi- mm-hmm. like conceptions of individual dignity. Um, and it's not necessarily an entirely new field where the state has full reign to just come up with an entirely new data right. regulatory regime. Exactly. And then we're back to basic market notions. Uh, I know I give up way too much data, but it's a cost-benefit analysis in which I am engaging. I like to have a cell phone. Mm-hmm. I like to have it on. I could leave my cell phone off at home. I could never engage in browser searches. But the cost-benefit analysis is such that I'm willing to give up some of that data. And, my eyeballs are valuable, apparently, and I don't know who's monetizing it at that point. Uh, but beyond that, if I were really worried about it, I would, again, seek legal advice or seek through friends and th- other concerned consumers find a, a, a club solution to that. I think we're also going to have market solutions, just as banks without the FDIC, banks would be able to compete on transparency. They would be able to compete on their level of reserves, which they could publish every day. And if the bank goes bust because the manager lied about the reserves, the manager faces criminal liability as opposed to a bailout from the taxpayer through the FDIC. So we could have a parallel solution to that. Maybe I'm being too flippant uh, on my own individual basis. But again, we have such a weight of the state that a lot of us simply give up. Like, uh, I think one of the problems with education is people just want to drop their kids off at the bus stop and not make choices. Mm. Well... Uh, James Buchanan had a nice essay called uh, Afraid to be Free, Dependency is Desideratum. So I think that's one of the negative consequences of the massive weight of the state. And if the state were smaller, we would probably see a lot more market solutions, competition solutions, club good solutions, uh, common law solutions, rather than a regulatory solution. Hmm. So I'd like to end on a sort of looking forward note. Uh, how do we make this sort of analysis more mainstream? Um, because obviously, um, this is more of a framework than it is a prescriptive solution to every single mm-hmm. problem in society. Everyone's going to have their own solutions. If you put two libertarians in the room, they're probably going to argue. Um, but then the day, we want those arguments and not necessarily um, the arguments that we're seeing mm-hmm. today. We like a broader, yeah. categ- broad, broader, broader views in, in the equation. So given that, as we discussed, the academy is very entrenched when it comes to mm-hmm. the state's got to solve everything. Markets are either flawed or evil in many ways. So how do you think we can inject more of these um, solutions into the conversation? Well, it's, it's difficult because I certainly don't want to be um, looking to create a blueprint for society because I'm, if I'm an expert on anything, I'm an expert on the overall structure, not the particulars. I know nothing about growing food. Mm-hmm. But we have professional farmers and professional agribusiness that are feeding 300-plus million Americans. Uh, I know nothing about building cars, but Detroit and foreign car companies are creating cars for us. I know nothing about computers. Well, I know how to turn on the computer. Uh, I know how to turn on the browser. I know how to turn on Excel. I don't know how a computer works, but I don't need to know how the computer works. So if the state would just, the first answer to your question, if the state would just get out of the way, then market solutions would emerge, entrepreneurs would see opportunities, and then social entrepreneurs in the form of civil society. Uh, David Beto wrote a magnificent book on this uh, called From Mutual Aid to the Welfare State. 
uh, where he talks about the pre-1920s uh, solutions to these very kinds of problems that socialists are worried about, health care, legal advice, um, uh, retirement, uh, pensions, uh, widows and orphan benefits, voluntarily provided. And then there was a war on that with the New Deal and nationalization of that effort. So the, the first answer that I have is, I don't know, but that's not my job. There are experts out there just the way there are experts who create food or computers or medicine. And then the second part is much more complicated. How do we get there? How do we change things? By having podcasts and conversations like we're doing right now, by getting into the classroom. And I was going to say, let's wave the magic wand and get the state entirely out of the business of education. That's a lot more complicated. I tend to be an optimist, uh, but after 2007, I thought we would get deregulation of the banks and an end to the Fed uh, because people saw how dangerous the Fed uh, regulation were. Instead, we got the Dodd-Frank Act and an even more powerful Fed with a bigger balance sheet. Uh, so I tend to be an optimist. Uh, I think COVID is probably going to lead into some positive changes in education because parents finally saw the garbage that was being taught in K-12. And, um, but it's social change and uh, I spent the past 15 years wrestling with the recipe and the recipe is free markets, capitalism, opportunity, limited governments, uh, the classical liberal solution. How we get there, it's a lot more complicated by doing the kinds of things that we're doing. I've been studying social change theory, but I don't have any clean answers on that part, unfortunately. I'll get back to you in about 15 years. Hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that answer. Thank you. Nikolai Wenzel? Affiliate Senior Faculty here at the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.